With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Bonus episode. Did Oliver Cromwell ban Christmas? Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. In today's special bonus episode, we're going to answer the question, did Oliver Cromwell ban Christmas? No, he didn't. Thank you to my Patreon House of Lords. Okay, we can go into a bit more detail. By virtue of him becoming the face of English Puritanism, warts and all, Cromwell tends to get blamed for the ban on Christmas during the Wars of the Three Kingdoms and the Commonwealth. There are plenty of potted histories, especially online, which lay the blame for the ban solely at Cromwell's feet. This isn't too surprising. Cromwell is famous for being miserable as sin, only sinning was not allowed. But on this very specific issue, it isn't accurate. When the English Parliament began passing laws against Christmas, Cromwell was still just a regular MP at this point. Though, as we know from the narrative, his position in the New Model Army means his personal influence and power is on the rise. While he would one day rule as Lord Protector, by the time he takes power, critics of Christmas had been taking steps to suppress it for almost a decade. Christmas in medieval and early modern England was incredibly popular. It was both a holy day and a public holiday, and Christmas Day marked the beginning of the Twelve Days. Special church services were held over these days. Decorations of evergreen plants like holly, ivy, and rosemary were displayed. Gifts were given and received, traditionally on New Year's Day. Food and drink was eaten and drunk in vast amounts, with special Christmas treats, like mince pies and Christmas ale. The period saw the appearance of the Lord of Misrule in England and the Abbot of Unreason in Scotland, with boy bishops preaching from the pulpit. So this all sounds quite fun! So naturally, it made the Twelve Days of Christmas utterly appalling to the hotter sort of Protestant. In England and Wales, Puritans railed against the frivolity and decadence of the holiday. Feasting, drinking, debauchery, partying, these were not appropriate ways to commemorate and celebrate the birth of Christ. There was no biblical justification for Christmas or the Twelve Days. 
From this point of view, Christmas was also run through with superstition and rituals, holdouts from before the Reformation. So, not only were traditional Christmas celebrations needlessly flamboyant and fun, but they were appalling reminders of Catholicism, which the Reformation should have thrown out along with the Pope. I mean, for goodness sake, you can't even spell Christmas without Mass. Instead, Christians should spend the holiday in sincere contemplation, penance, fasting, and other expressions of faith. Scottish Presbyterians were way ahead of their southern neighbours. In Scotland, the most famous critic of Christmas was the one and only John Knox. The great reformer railed against the holiday, but as thorough as the Scottish Reformation had been, Christmas remained a Scottish holiday until 1583, when the Kirk successfully had it banned. This ban lasted for the next 30-odd years, until James VI and I made his one and only return visit to his native Scotland. If you recall all the way back in the narrative, the king forced through the unpopular Five Articles of Perth, which reintroduced high church elements like kneeling at communion and the celebration of holy days like Easter and Christmas. But as we also saw, the Scottish bishops had enforced the Five Articles with a light touch. The Scottish Kirk did not appreciate the interference of their king. And then, 20 years later, with the bishops' wars, the General Assembly of the Kirk reintroduced the ban on Christmas. So, with their Kirk now once again perfect, the Scots came south to aid their religious brethren in completing the reformation of the Church of England and winning the Civil War. Plenty of Christmas critics were on the parliamentary side of the Civil War, but they were far from dominant. The abolition of Christmas came about from a series of steps. In 1642, Parliament banned the performance of plays in London, as they were sources of, quote, lascivious mirth and levity, and not at all appropriate for the, quote, times of humiliation, end quote, of a civil war. This hit the Christmas period particularly hard, as that was the peak of the theatrical season. The actors appealed the decision the following year, but the ban remained in place. In 1643, Parliament decided to sit on Christmas Day, instead of taking the traditional recess. There was no particularly important work that needed to be done, or indeed that was done, on that day. They assembled on that day to make a statement, and then spent the rest of the 12 days off. Moderates in Parliament had thrown their more zealous colleagues and their Scottish allies a bone, but they weren't yet prepared to completely reject the holiday. The true escalation came the following year. Christmas in 1644 also fell on a Wednesday, which is especially relevant because the last Wednesday of every month was legally designated as a day of fasting and penance. This would clash ever so slightly with the traditional feasting and debauchery of Christmas, so a decision had to be made on whether an exception for Christmas Day would be made. It was not. In December 1644, Parliament passed an ordinance calling for a fast over the Christmas period, with Christmas Day particularly singled out. Quote, this day in particular is to be kept with the more solemn humiliation, because it may call to remembrance our sins, and the sins of our forefathers, who have turned this feast, pretending the memory of Christ into an extreme forgetfulness of him, by giving liberty to carnal and sensual delights being contrary to the life which Christ led here upon earth. 
Now, it has to be said that whatever Parliament said in 1644, Christmas was still celebrated across the kingdom, and even in London. But Parliament was determined to take its own ordinance seriously, and they met and worked as if it was any other day. Some particularly zealous MPs, like Richard Brown, declared the abolition of Christmas. But that's not the end of the story. Because, like I said, people kept celebrating. Christmas wasn't really abolished, and Parliament wasn't really in a position to stop people celebrating. That is, until 1647. In June that year, Parliament reinforced its previous decision with another ordinance. The Ordinance for Abolishing of Festivals. This ruled that the Feast of the Nativity of Christ, as well as Easter and Whitsuntide, were no longer festivals and were not to be celebrated. Decorations of ivy, holly, and other evergreens were not to be displayed, carols were not to be sung, and businesses were to open and workers to work as usual. To replace the lost eight days of holiday which these festivals traditionally gave, the ordinance ensured that every second Tuesday of every month was a holiday. Everyone would have six months to come to terms with this new reality, ordinary folk gained an extra four days off a year, and England was one step closer to being a godly society. Except that isn't what happened. Christmas was incredibly popular, and as we're seeing in the narrative, Parliament was increasingly unpopular. As we'll cover in the main episodes, the King was becoming a focal point of resistance to the unpopular Parliament. All this combined to make the winter of 1647-48 to a winter of discontent. When Christmas came around, and parliamentary authorities began to enforce the June Ordinance, riots followed. Violent unrest led to deaths and injuries in Ipswich, Oxford, Ealing, and London. In Canterbury, locals smashed up shops which followed the ordinance and opened as normal. Football, also illegal under the Puritan rule, was played throughout the streets, preventing the authorities from opening the markets. In London, the Lord Mayor was jeered by the crowds and forced to flee on his horse. Many shops remained closed, and, as in Canterbury and elsewhere, those who did open risked the anger of the crowds. Even many churches in the capital refused to follow the ban, and went ahead and decorated with evergreens, only for parliamentarian soldiers to arrive and try to remove them. Across England and Wales, Christmas was widely celebrated as normal, as ordinary people flouted the ban. In the aftermath of this unrest, Parliament was in a tricky position. The Kentish authorities urged Parliament to allow the so-called ringleaders of the unrest in Canterbury to be tried under martial law. Parliament, wisely, refused, and ordered them tried by jury in ordinary courts. The jury refused to convict them, and the rioters walked. There were pragmatic reasons for enforcing the ban. Christmas celebrations invited demonstrations of support for the King and for the Old Church of England. They used the Book of Common Prayer, which had been abolished by the Westminster Assembly of Divines and replaced with the Directory of Public Prayer. Now that Parliament had made their war on Christmas a matter of state policy, backpedalling would be a disaster. But rigidly enforcing the ban only increased resentment of Parliament. It's also important to remember that not all Puritans wanted the complete abolition of the festive period. 
Oliver Cromwell himself is said to have celebrated that new year, giving and receiving the traditional New Year gifts, despite many of his spiritual allies condemning the entire 12 days. Officially, the ban on Christmas would be enforced throughout the rest of the reign of Charles I and into the Protectorate and the Commonwealth. On more than one occasion, soldiers would patrol towns and cities, confiscating food and drink which was believed to be prepared for Christmas. But from here on, public celebrations of Christmas were usually suppressed by the authorities, but behind closed doors, Christmas would continue to be celebrated. With the restoration of the Stuarts in 1660 followed the restoration of Christmas in England and Wales, but not in Scotland, where it remained banned until 1712, with the Kirk continuing to frown on celebrating it. It was only in the 1950s that Christmas became a public holiday once again, which is partly why here in Scotland, New Year, Hogmanay, is just as big, if not a bigger party, as Christmas. For all the things we can throw at Cromwell's feet, and there's plenty, the banning of Christmas in England and Wales is not really one of them. He was in favour of the ban, sure, but anti-Christmas fervour was already strong in parliamentary circles. Christmas would have been banned without his involvement, and it actually was. For the key pieces of legislation, he was away from Parliament and unable to vote. It's true that once he becomes Lord Protector, he could have repealed the ban but it suited his objective to reform society. But that being said, he didn't aggressively suppress it as long as Christmas celebrations stayed private and didn't become associated with royalism or sedition. So no, Oliver Cromwell did not ban Christmas. This has just been a short bonus episode to tide you over until the narrative resumes in 2023. There's a lot to come, and I'm really excited to cover it. The new model army, including Cromwell, is about to march on London, Charles I is about to make a deal with the Scots, and political radicals are starting to wander aloud. Do we really need a king? We're getting to the point where the English Civil War becomes the English Revolution. To all my listeners who celebrate Christmas, and to all those who don't, I wish you a very happy holidays and a prosperous new year. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show, historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. 
and we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now and can you guess the twist? It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.